Here at Children's Hospital and Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska, it's just kids, all day, every day. Our pediatric experts are here to answer your questions and weigh in on hot topics, helping you keep your child healthy, safe, and strong. We're here for you. Listen in. Many of us, especially and most directly those in the Black community, have been deeply hurt and troubled by recent tragedies and ongoing racial inequity in our country. In this episode, we talk, and most importantly, listen, to Siobhan Washington Krauf, Children's Culture and Inclusion Manager, and Dr. Mike Vance, Director of Children's Behavioral Health, about how to have healthy discussions about racism and discrimination with your children. How can parents educate and make a positive impact for the future? Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Mike Vance. I'm the Director of Psychology and Behavioral Health at Children's Hospital and Medical Center. We are here to talk about a very important and challenging topic today, and I have Siobhan Washington Kraut with me as well and she'll get a chance to introduce her here in a second. Really, we're going to take uh, a number of questions that have come to both of us in our professional and personal roles and share our thoughts on those. I can't say that they're definitely answers because it's, uh, these are very difficult and challenging topics. And our topic for today is talking to your children about race. It is timely and sensitive and important for us to have this discussion. So I'm gonna hand off to Siobhan and let her introduce herself and tell you a little bit more about our topic. And then we'll, we'll dive into the questions. I think we're planning on somewhere around 20 to 30 minutes of time. So we'll get going on what we're doing next. So Siobhan, it's all yours. Thanks, Mike. Hello, I'm Siobhan Washington Kraut. I'm the Culture and Inclusion Manager at Children's Hospital and Medical Center. I am also the mother of two biracial children. My husband is white, and I am the mother of two African Americans who were born and raised in Paris, Kentucky. So, racism is a topic that hurts everyone, it's a public health issue, and it's known as a social determinant of health. It can affect us in so many different ways. It can range on effect between infant mortality rates to maternal health outcomes to how the systematic discrimination and access to healthcare can increase the risk of complications and death from various diseases. Most recently, we're seeing this in the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 in minority populations. At Children's, we believe that injustice and inequity hurt the health and well-being of children. We cannot and will not stay silent in matters that negatively impact children's. As caregivers and advocates for children, we speak up and stand against all acts of racism and discrimination. Children's has a mission-critical role in addressing the issues at hand through care, advocacy, research, and education. And we know that racial disparities and injustice are social determinants of health, and we have a responsibility to improve the health of our community. Racism and discrimination of any kind are unacceptable at children's. So Mike, our first question that has come up is, what is the role and responsibility of parents and other adults who care for and guide young people at this time? What are your thoughts? It's an interesting question on so many levels, Siobhan. Um, I think that 
as we think about our role and responsibility as adults and on any topic, but something especially this sensitive is we have to model what we tell our kids. We definitely have to have conversations about these topics. I think to assume that your kids are unknowing on these ideas or unexperienced in these ideas and these events that happen in our society is a mistake. But I think that the most important part here is to remember to be age appropriate. Um, you've got two children and I'm sure their, uh, their age and understanding of what's happening with this goes very, very differently. And, and as much as two to three years separation or two to three critical experiences can make a big difference. So I think the real important part is finding out where your child is at. Ask them what they've heard about these events. Ask them what they've experienced, either directly or through their peer group. But get an idea where they're at and then guide them. And, and please be consistent. Don't say one thing and then act another way when you're out in public. It only makes things much more confusing for your kid. So what do you think, Siobhan, as, as the parent of two and right in some of those critical ages? What, what are your responsibilities and roles? Yeah, I think you I think you nailed it really. I mean, you have to be honest and we can't assume that that children don't know about what's going on. I had my first conversation with my oldest child when he was still in preschool and it just it surprised me quite honestly. And I think that we have to like you said we have to model what we're what we're saying. We have to be able to articulate a complicated topic but if we do it through the guidance of our children and what, what questions they have and keeping it simple, I think that's, that's our best strategy. I think we have to be absolutely honest. I think that we, we tend to, in our attempt to protect our children, we, we tend to not tell the full truth. And I think that that's where we sometimes go wrong. Excellent, well put, well put. And I think too, we, we have to take a look at our own location too. I'm a white male, I'm a privilege. I walk and I've got gray hair and I dress well. When I walk into certain situations, I'm treated very differently and I have to recognize that. And we have to search our own, our own biases and our, and our own prejudice that we have too before we talk to our children about it. Because even though we think we understand all of these situations, we really need to not take it for granted and take a true look at what our beliefs and our behaviors are before we communicate it to our kids. It's just so important and, and makes it more genuine, as you were saying, rather than uh, trying to sugarcoat it or say what we think sounds good, but to, to, go, to the, go to the truth of the matter. Now, you know, I had my first conversation with my oldest when he was in preschool and the conversation was partially spurred because my skin is brown and his is what traditionally looks white to people. So that was a pretty early age. Is there a certain age that you think that these conversations need to happen? It depends on the child's maturity and the events that they experience and the environments they're in. But I think the earlier that we start to explain individual differences with kids and what we actually value in friendships and, and uh, trust and respect is not the color of somebody's skin or the amount of money they make or the way that they dress or which church uh, or religious institution they go to. So I think it's important to start really early on, but just remain age appropriate. And 
con continue a consistent message for these kids, whether it's any of these areas, it's, you don't need to wait till they're six or seven or till they, if you wait till they've come to you with the questions, you're probably a little bit behind the curve and it should have been a conversation that you initiated earlier. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that um, we try to dance around it a little too much thinking that our kids are too young. But I'm interested in how you started the conversation with your kids uh, as we think about this. This is kind of like the birds and the bees talk at times. It can be very difficult and, and challenging. And I think it would be really helpful since you've gone through that experience. How, how did you know where to start and, and how did you initiate the conversation? Yeah, um, it, it really started off with my son who on the outside appears to be white, uh, was asking me about why another kid was called black when his skin was brown. And um, that kind of opened the door for me to be like, you know, that's a really good point. They refer to us as black people, but our skin is brown, huh? And so I used that segue, especially because he was such a young age, to talk about the concept of race is really a social construct, which are adult words for saying race is something that people made up based on the color of our skin. And so I showed him, I held our arms next to each other. I said, you see, my skin is brown and your skin is what people would call white. And he said, well, my skin's not white. I said, I know, and mine's not black, but that's what we call it. And so it, it went from there in this conversation of, and once upon a time, that was something that people used against other people. And there were times where your mom would not have been allowed to go places that your dad was. And so we talked about that. And, and of course he's, I don't know, whatever age preschool is, I'm not good at keeping track of those ages, but we really kept talking about it from the, the stance of skin tone. And, and he kept asking, well, what does it mean? And I said, it means, it really means nothing. I said, but it just means that I have extra amounts of something in my skin that you don't have. But in some places, in some realities, people are going to treat me differently and people are not going to believe that I'm your mom just because of that. And then I reminded him, I said, but however, I said, God loves variety. And so how boring would it be if we all looked the same, right? And he was mm -hmm. like, okay. And then that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. You, you handled that very well in, in, in the sense that a, a lot of us as, as parents, when we get the opportunity to talk about these difficult topics, we give the child so much more information than they wanted or that they're ready for. And that way, without doing that and giving, you know, using the level of the concrete of one difference to the other level of explanation that you used, and then allowing that conversation to continue. He, he, I'm sure he came back to you with more questions, whereas mm -hmm. if you would have sat him down and said, great, let's read this book I've been wanting you to read to explain <laughs> all this to you, he would have gone, mom, leave me alone. It's not what I wanted to know. So I think that was, that was a really great example of giving the child the information that they're asking for and then leaving the door open for communication. Because as we see, um, as this time that we've been going through recently is as we, we've all seen, or most of us have seen the video on George Floyd and um, have seen that interaction and that, that impact. And our kids have seen it as well. Um, under probably very, um, a lot of different um, 
uh, circumstances. So how, what, what do you think about when we talk about, talk to our kids about this event? Are there some points that you use as a mom and uh, an HR specialist to talk about this very tragic, I mean, just disturbing situation to watch? How do you broach that subject with kids? Yeah, I, I start really with what does, the, what does the child know? It goes back to very similar to what you said at the very beginning about how we talk to them. You know, I have a seven-year-old who is, for the most part, completely oblivious to what's going on right now. And I'm okay with him staying that way because it is so complicated for a seven-year-old mind. He is aware that there are protests going on and he is aware that some people are behaving badly. And that's really all he cares about. And he goes back to his little world. And so I just let him stay there, let him remain innocent. But if he would ask me questions, I would address his, his questions based on his age. Now, my nine, almost 10-year-old has, unfortunately, he is one of the children who has seen parts of that video. And he asked me, he said, Mommy, why did they have to kill him? And I said, they didn't, honey. They didn't have to kill him. And that's why everybody's so mad. And then he asked, well, what did he do? you know, like a child would, like, well, mm -hmm. why am I in trouble, mommy? And I said, well, you know, and I explained what they had originally arrested him for, gave him a really basic example of what that was. And he said, well, he didn't deserve to die for that. And I said, no, he didn't, baby. And that's what everybody's upset about. So I just kept going back to, this is what happened. And this is why people are upset. And then when he was concerned, am I safe? That was his other big thing when he heard about the riots. Mm. And so I explained to him, I, I said, first, honey, what you need to understand is there are many people out there who are protesting and most of them are doing nothing wrong and everything's okay. I said, but there are places where people are misbehaving and we have to stay away from those places. But in general, honey, we are safe. And he asked again, well, why are they so, why are they doing that? Like, because they're mad and some of them are just trying to cause trouble. So I kept it really simple and I kept it in frames that are similar to what he would think of in school. I don't know, what do you think, Mike? How, well, would you, how do you say we handle that? I, I, think, you, I think you get an A plus. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, one of the, the things that, it, depending on the child's age, one of the, not lately, because the kids haven't been in school because of COVID-19, but um, I like using school as an analogy a bit because the hard part about the the um, the Mr. Floyd situation is that there is a person in position of authority that's doing something wrong, and kids. Some of the kids that we work with came to the question. Well, I thought police officers were supposed to be good, or I thought whoever, whether it's any leader that's in a position of of having authority and or respect. And I try to help kids understand that it's it's. Um, people behave badly in very different roles. And, and there's a lot of police officers that are awesome and great and outstanding and respectful and trusting. And just like with anything, there are people that um, don't use their power appropriately and that don't make good choices. And, that, um, and, and I think, especially when kids get to that middle elementary age, they can start to understand that. It's a little harder for your seven and under because they're still pretty much all or none. And they're thinking, well, that, you know, that has to be all good and that has to be all bad. And, and that's one of the difficulties about this topic, as you clearly evidenced, is there's, it, it's a, 
the whole topic in general um, is not clear cut. It's not just like, oh, here, here's an easy explanation. It's not two plus two, because it's got such an extensive history and it's got such a variety. Racism shows itself in so many different ways, some of it subtly, some of it blatantly out there. But in any case, it's, it's all quite confusing to a lot of kids. They, they, um, and, and, and I think it's just important. That's why it's important to continue to have those discussions. Um, so question came to me the other day, should a family, how should a family gauge how they're doing with understanding race and, and modeling it and their own biases? Is there a special test you can take or a, um, a, a, uh, an x-ray you can have done that can really give you a perception of where you're truly at? Because I, I, that was the question that was asked to me on, on, on several occasions. And I, I was wondering, do you, do you have any ideas on how a family really takes an inventory of that? Yeah, I wish there was a litmus test that you, know, you could <laughs> just lick this piece of paper and we yeah. could figure out and make life easier. You know, I think it really takes a lot of honest reflection. There, there actually is a test that adults can take called the uh, implicit association test that mm -hmm. um, Harvard has put out. That is actually, it's, it's quite lengthy and there's lots of different biases that you can look at with that. But, you know, most people aren't going to do that in children. Certainly it's not set for children, but I think we have to really sit back and, and, listen to the conversations that are being had within our family, within our close family unit, in our nuclear family, but then also in our extended families. Are there jokes that mm. tend to come up? Um, are there mentions of common stereotypes that keep coming through, especially negative stereotypes, but they can be positive stereotypes too, that are still, um, they're positive in the sense that they're saying something positive about a group, but it's still mm -hmm. causing harm. Um, I think we need to look at what are, what's our network look like? You know, are, are we surrounded by all people who look the same? And um, if we're not, are they all people who have the same experience overall? Because that is really going to form, formulate how you look at the world. And I think it's especially important, particularly if you're um, a white person who is raising a person of color um, including a biracial child, it's even more important to make sure um, that you're taking these, this assessment of what kind of conversations are being had and what type of network you have. Another good point really to look at is when you do hear a story on the news or, or you hear a story in conversation, do you have a tendency to go in the defensive of the person who maybe was a victim of a situation? Do you look for all the reasons that that person was wronged or things should have been better for that person? But then another person who looks another way or is from a different race or ethnic background, if they're in that situation, do you potentially flip the script a little bit more often than you realize? And you look at all the reasons that that person was wrong and how they may have set themselves up for being in whatever situation. When you start seeing those types of behaviors, you're probably not in the healthiest place at all with um, where your racial, your racial biases may lie. And it's really hard to start working on that if you're not willing to be honest. We do have to ask our behavior, you know, ask ourselves about our behavior. And, and I think when we think about the ages that this can happen with kids, it starts really early on. Um, 
you see behaviors, I see behaviors when we're at parks, when we're at different situations of very young kids um, being subjected to or acting in a way that would be that would be racist. And then the question comes, you know, do we do we take the time to point that out to our kids? So if we're around someone and we notice that behavior, even if it direct doesn't directly affect us, we need to take the second to with our with our child at that point and say, hey, Mike, that was that person treated that other person inappropriately. Whether it's somebody was overlooked for a place in line, whether it's a comment that's said, whether it's a point of access that's allowed, um, a look that was given. Not that we need to run around and, and search for this at every, every second that we're out there, because it's real easy to find, unfortunately, in our society. That's what you would spend your day doing. But I, I just think that you know, it's never too young to start talking about kids, how to treat each other kind, regardless of their hair color, skin color, freckles, no freckles, um, race, um, what they're wearing in terms of um, the religious uh, attire as well. So start early and, and, and be consistent and don't be a hypocrite and say, say one thing and then act in a different way because your, your message will get totally uh, lost um, with, with your child. So I think it's, it's important to start early. Yeah. So there, there's a, a, a lot of discussion out there about um, people being along those same lines, being aware of being a person of privilege. Um, as we look, what are, what are some things that a, a person of privilege can do to demonstrate their ability to be an ally and their ability to understand, um, to show their appreciation for people of all color and all races and, and to not have assumptions go on the other side because it's like, well, wait, they're white, so they must be thinking this about me. So how do we, how do we make sure that we, we share it that way back? Because any, any ideas on that one, Sean? Yeah, you know, I think that the, one of the first thing people can do is recognize the fact that they do have privilege, you know, and, and privilege doesn't mean by any means that a person had an easy life. A person could have, you know, this is mm -hmm. like, you often hear the term white privilege and that gets loaded for some people and the response is, but I didn't have an easy life. And that's not what that means. It doesn't mean that, that the person had an easy life by any means. It is merely a way of saying that access is different for that person and it was it's unearned. Now, whether or not they actually had access is something different. So when you think of privilege in the sense of access in particular, that often means that you also have access to a, a larger platform, which means that you can be heard in places when someone else, a person of color, or a person from other marginalized, marginalized group may not be able to be heard. So using your voice to be able to say, this is wrong, this is not right, we can do better, we can do differently. That's one of the best things that you can do to be helpful. You know, that's what you see with some of these celebrities um, that sometimes we get annoyed because we take it from the perspective of, well, why should we care just because they're a celebrity? In reality, that's an example often of showing a person being an ally through the use of their privilege, their privilege to be able to have a larger audience, to be able to get a, a, their voice across in a media format that others may not be able to. So 
being able to step up and say something for someone and be heard differently. That's being an ally. That's using privilege and in an allyship form. Great example. Great example. Um, and I find too that um, language and terms are, are very important when we're talking about um, different different races and different situations. And um, I always ask if I'm unsure how to refer to somebody or to refer to a situation, I ask them, um, how do you want me to refer to this or what words can I use there? Um, some people are afraid to do that because it thinks that they're showing insensitive and they're being ignorant. Well, it's actually worse to say the wrong thing and trying to act like you knew something before you before you um, before you open your mouth. So I think that 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 is a big piece. Well, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. A number of the questions came in talking about access to healthcare, and as you read and and, and talked about in your early discussions, that there are some disparities in terms of access to we're a children's hospital and we treat some really sick kids and do an awesome job doing it but um, that's an aside but but how do we make sure as a community we um, get out there and, and get access to care for all our kids that 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 need the care whether they have privilege or not they should have a privilege to get the best possible medical care and the best access to that. So what are some, I, I know you don't have a magic wand or you didn't just uh, win the trillion dollar lottery, but um, how do we as a community embrace to get kids access to that healthcare so that they aren't further penalized by things that aren't their fault? I think uh, utilizing the services that are provided through the school-based the school -based health centers Mm -hmm. is one way to be able to do that. You know, we have a lot of our, our specialists are making visits to schools or having connections in various ways with various schools. I think that's one of the best ways to do it because sometimes the access to care is uh, a transportation issue or parents are working multiple jobs and the, when the parent or the caregiver is able to be able to get the child to a visit, then perhaps our clinics are, are closed at that point. So actually, you know, we, I come to think of it, we've got a number of providers that are in uh, several of the South Omaha school, school areas and, and OPS and also in some other areas around the community. And kids, our show rate is awesome. Kids love it. The providers that are in there in the schools connect to their teachers. And it is just um, a very powerful mechanism for access to care. And one that I hope our community continues to support because uh, kids are there. They, they, you're, you're exactly right in the fact that they remove obstacles. And part of this COVID-19 situation has really made more and more people comfortable with video access. So what we're able to actually do then is if we're seeing a child in the school, we could actually video the parent in so that they could be part of the visit, which is wonderful if they're home with another sick child or their home because they're infirmed themselves or they don't have transportation access to get there. So I think that that, that community education is, is a really, really big piece. So thanks for doing that, yeah. for bringing that up. Um, so what are some things that we're doing at Children's? Are there any things that we're doing to try to uh, close some of these gaps and, and, and enrich our, 
our uh, cultural diversity at, at Children's and and because um, I know when I sit in a lot of meetings at whether whatever hospital it is, there's an awful lot of females and then there's very few people of color at, at, the, at the table. Maybe it's different than certain other businesses, but what are we doing? Are we doing anything that um, is of note? Yeah, we're, we're really getting going on this to make sure that we are serving our audiences as best we can and serving ourselves as best we can. And we've been um, starting up with culture and inclusion classes related to unconscious bias. And um, we're talking about inclusive leadership. We're also learning about stereotypes and really starting to get into more diversity dialogues so that we can really understand more of what's going on, working on looking at our recruitment practices. We're, we're trying to really cover the gambit on everything and really work on listening to one another quite a bit more and listening to our patients and our, our families, what it is that they need. And I think as, as we're doing our work within the organization, I think also a, a great way to foster great, great equity and healing in our homes and our communities is really that we start with the heart, just like we're doing here. Um, so to do that in our communities means starts in the heart and starts in our home. And we use moments like this as teachable moments. And this is a great opportunity for discussion, both in our organizations and in our homes to discuss racism and discrimination in America and together. And, and we can dismantle these structures that are, that are holding our nation back to be the greatest version that it could possibly be. But it really does start with that individual conversation. And like you had said at the very beginning, modeling behavior and being open and honest and listening to where everyone is and meeting people where they are and really listening with your heart and suspending our own personal judgment. I, what do you think? Do you have any I, last words I, of encouragement? <laughs> I don't think I could end any better than that, Siobhan. That was very well said and, and heartfelt and, and you took a lot of the words right out of my, my own thinking with where we go for this. It's, um, I think it needs ongoing discussion and the the events have created a moment that we must discuss with our children and we must process. Not that we need to have our TVs on 24-7 reviewing it, but if we get anything positive out of something like this, it is hopefully increased healing and understanding and connectivity and sharing and preventing. You know, prevention is such an important part of this. And the worst thing that can happen about this is if this starts, if this continues to, history continues to repeat itself. Hopefully as a community, we can continue to do some of the things that you very clearly described as, as self-care and family care in this talk and have open, trusting, honest communication and make sure that we're modeling social appropriate behavior and please all take a chance to be aware of our own actions and our own behaviors. It is so important. Well, both Siobhan and I thank you very much for, your, for the audience's time and listening to this important topic. And hopefully it left you with a few ongoing discussion points that you can have with your children and or with family. Thank you again for your time. Take care, I'll be safe. Thank you for listening to Just Kids Health. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Visit childrensomaha.org for more information on how we can help your child.